what is it about musicians and science? You're a physicist, aren't you? Well, I, I was one a long time ago, and um, physics has moved on a long way since then, and uh, so have I. I couldn't say I was a physicist now. <laughs> <laughs> but you studied physics, didn't you? And it was it was where you went before music. I studied physics, and and I worked for a little while with those uh, with what skills, however modest, I I acquired in that modelling airflows for the F one eleven. That sounds like fairly serious science to me. Uh, it's actually aerodynamic engineering, but you know, but a physicist is supposed to have the the fundamental skills to be able to take on something like that. I can't say I was very good at it. You obviously have a great love of words and language. Where did that come from? What were you reading and what were you listening to as a child? I think my love of words and language and humour, which is very much part of it, comes more from not so much from reading but from listening to regional speech in Australia, listening just to the way people talk, you know. I love the way that the the enormously intelligent use of language that that you get in just regional and grassroots Australia, and just the way I I like to laugh, and and people say stuff that makes me laugh all the time. Aussies can be very wry and dark and funny all at the same time, and pull it off quite successfully. Yeah, is that something you try to apply to writing, or in a very intentional way? I just. I just try and write um, in a way that's close to conversation. And the conversation that I know is, is the way that I talk and, and the people uh, around me whose company I enjoy talk. What was on the radio when you were a kid, though? Obviously, at some stage, your curiosity in music has been piqued. What was it? Uh, where I grew up, there was a uh, what used to be 2NR. Two, two there were two stations. 2NR was the... ABC station on the north coast and the local commercial station was 2GF and uh, so 2GF was where you went for music they didn't play any kind of music except for occasional classical programs on two, on the ABC so the music that was played on the local commercial station that was the music we heard and it was a peculiar um, a peculiar kind of faux country music a lot of American stuff, but some Australian stuff in that curious period between Elvis and the Beatles. You know, when Elvis, Elvis hit, and then it all went quiet when he joined the army, and there were, and but the Beatles hadn't happened yet. So there was a kind of a, a fallow period there where all sorts of wild and wonderful, but now forgotten things happened in music. And recently, um, last year, uh, a mate of mine who grew up. And he's exactly my age, and he grew up in the wheat fields in Western Australia. He told me he saw a movie called The Tree of Man, which I haven't seen, but apparently it's the greatest movie of the last 10 years or so. And in this movie, he was shocked into that period of uh, 1960, listening to commercial radio, and uh, was talking about this. And, and a friend of his who works in a record shop, they gathered three CDs of what was on the radio in that period. And he gave me these CDs, and it's a real shock to listen to them because uh, these are not songs that are that are widely played since. So to listen to three CDs of them now plunges me straight back to sitting on a veranda on a farm when I was 10 years old. And uh, it's wonderful stuff, you know, Big Bad John, very early, uh, some quite a, quite a bit of Johnny Cash, stuff like that. Patsy Klein. It's interesting listening to you talk about those songs because I think I was about to ask you what was on those CDs, Don, what was on them, but I could probably sing you all the words to Big Bad John because my dad would have been listening to that. That That's one of those musical memories that I have from him. Yes, yeah. That, that and, and a weird combination of, you know, American trucking songs about um, ghosts of dead little girls and things, <laughs> things like that. That's right. Um, six days on the road, and I'm going to see my baby tonight. Mm. Or uh, Wolverton Mountain. Yes. yes. Or from a Jack to a King. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. <laughs> All of that. So, yes, that that was mm. the car going on holidays for sure. And you're referring to that, of course. That town was Grafton, the the, the town of Jacarandas and the Bendy Bridge. That's right. We we were talking there about how music is so evocative. Music, they say that music and scent, Don, are those two things that can really, just about instantaneously, pick you up and plonk you back very clearly in in a memory in a particular time and place. 
Are there other pieces of music that do that for you in different times of your life? Well, always, because I there's not much music from any, you know, I'm now in my early 60s, so it's there's a good few decades there. There's not much music from any particular decade that I continue to listen to. So there's a lot of music in any decade that I only listen to then. So if I hear anything like that, it's unsullied by listening since, and that will plunge me back into that time and place. Mm. I listened to a lot of Miles Davis when I was a student. I haven't listened to much of it since. Uh, so if I hear that now, straight away I'm, I'm 20 years old, it's midnight, and I'm trying to figure out a way to study instead of waste time. <laughs> Why haven't you listened to Miles Davis since you were studying? I don't know. You listen to that and then and then you move on to other things. There's a certain period where, you know, I was very passionate about that. And then I think when, when Miles started to put his trumpet through a wah-wah pedal, I kind of peeled off and let him get on with that and uh, didn't listen to it much since he probably made a lot of great albums after that. But... Uh, but I, I just got on to other things. I think we take our music with us through our lives, whether we're listening to it or not, and there comes a point where you can listen to or, in my case, play something on the radio and share with people that maybe I loved 30 years ago but only 10 years ago would never have admitted to. Yes, there's, um, there's plenty of stuff like that that I can go back to and, you know, I'd only, I would only admit between you and I that, you know, at a certain stage, I was very passionate about blood, sweat, and tears, <laughs> and and uh, and it's, it is interesting to go back and listen to stuff now and f- and find out. Well, does that does that sound as good as you know how it sounded at the time? You know, blood, sweat, and tears now sounds appalling. If you put on um, Bitches Brew now, that sounds pretty good. So there are examples like that. There, you know, there's sort of bad fashion things that you do in any era. I'm sure among the stuff I'm listening to and liking now, there's um, there's some pretty horrible stuff. You're going to ask me what? Yeah. And <laughs> but um, I don't know. There's um, I don't listen to much contemporary music. I think thinking. we're all allowed to have guilty pleasures, though, Don. That's right. Yeah. I put uh, my my two sons are eleven and and just turned thirteen, and I my career started through the heady days of commercial FM music and uh, countdown and all of that sort of stuff, and so I take very seriously my responsibility to make sure that my kids have heard and understand music from many many decades, and including those that you know predate what I would have actually been buying things like the. Beach Beach Boys, for example. So, you know, I had them in the car on the weekend listening to pet sounds and explaining to them why pet sounds was important. When you hear something that does, as you were saying there, it does still hold up sonically. That still, even if it, the, the lyrics are a bit cheesy and maybe uh, the arrangements and instruments, if you were to do it now, would change, but are still so beautifully recorded and beautifully produced. Does that redeem them for you somewhat? Well, you can't dismiss something just because it has cheesy lyrics any more than you can automatically dismiss something because it has cheesy music. You know, often in those combinations there's there's a treasure. But, um, you know, the Beach Boys, I never got it, you know. It's not that I never got it, I just never bothered. They just weren't. I think because when I was young, nobody in the band could actually play. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I thought nobody could do a, a solo, and that was important when I was, uh, you know, 20 and 25. So I never followed it up. About two years ago, and I've been doing a lot of long car trips the last couple of years. Two years ago, I bought a Best of Beach Boys and just and listened to it and started to wake up why so many of my musical friends, not so much musicians, but people in the music business and radio people and music journalists, a fanatical Beach Boys fan, and I, fans, and I started to get it. I th- started to realise, oh, this isn't just another pop group. There's a, actually something unique and extraordinary going that has happened here, and everybody else is just imitators. I kind of knew that, but I never got it myself. But now I do. A beautiful song in any sort of genre, I think, uh, that that's beautifully crafted and uh, beautifully 
made is a real thing of joy, whether it's two and a half minutes of, you know, perfect Beach Boys pop or or whatever it may be. Exactly. Exactly. But for me, you know, if, if you're talking vocal groups, I'd be... I'd be talking something throughout my life. I'd be talking the Everly Brothers or, you know, I always thought the Beatles take everything else away. Uh, They're still the most extraordinary vocal group. That's where, if I was listening to vocal music or song craftsmanship, that's where I'd be going. But uh, I realised that uh, the Beach Boys are right in there with them. Hey, try to tell your dreams come true. Hey, lie. Until you're black and blue You gotta put a deadlock on everything you got You gotta hide what you ain't got to It's getting on a daylight and I don't want to stop I want to do the holly golly with you I'm gonna ride up to one tree My guest is Don Walker here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle. Sometimes, Don, when I'm speaking with songwriters about their hits, they can get a little bit funny about it or they get sick of talking about them or being constantly asked to play them. You've got an awful lot of those sorts of songs uh, under your belt. How do you feel about being the father of some truly iconic Australian songs, things like Kaysan, things like Choir Girl, things like Flame Trees? Uh, well, it's nice because there's a good living in that kind of thing. But um, it's um, once songs like that go out and become adopted by people as part of their, you know, their canon of what they like to listen to, just like the songs of other people that we've been talking about, then it becomes a little bit remote to me. The last five years or so, occasionally, I've done K-San myself with just a piano. Uh, but that sounds that sounds utterly different. So 
I can kind of uh, own that again like that. It becomes a story with some chords. But it doesn't sound remotely like Jim and Cold Chisel on the radio because I can't sing like that. So, and the, and the Cold Chisel version on the radio, I'm very proud of it, you know. We're a bunch of young guys and, and we, did, we did some good stuff. And it's good that people like that and it holds up decades later. But it's a little bit remote from uh, my daily life. You mentioned, though, that you, you a few years ago were able to go and do that live with piano. Is that something that, that perhaps uh, the gift of distance has given you, that you can revisit them in a way that previously you wouldn't have? This is also a conversation I had with John Schumann a few years ago. I've known John since I worked for his record company 25 years ago, and I had constantly avoided talking to him about I was only 19. And one day I just thought, you know, now I want to know. I want to write it down. It's it's an important part of our story. I want to know how he feels about it. And so that's why I'm giving you the same interrogation <laughs> over those songs of yours. Well, it's a little bit different because as far as I know, uh, John originally sang It Was Only 19. Uh, and uh, so the version you hear on the radio is him singing. Mm. And, and I think he's been singing it ever since. So that's part of what he does on stage and he's like closer to it with K-San I haven't I didn't sing it originally mm. uh, I just wrote it and showed it to the other guys in the band uh, Jim's been singing it it's it's a sort of an integral part of what Jim does live and not me it's not part of what I do live neither are any other cold chisel songs so that makes it a little bit more remote than what John's experience with would be with it was only 19 it's just in the in the last few years, I started doing this other piano version of it. Um, I I wasn't avoiding it in all that time. It's just that uh, it's not something that sounds like what I do, and it's it's not the way that that I sound when I sing. So, you know, you, with with such a a song that's widely loved as that, if I get up and sing it, somebody might yell out, you know. <laughs> That's not how it goes. <laughs> um, and the other thing about it is it's got a lot of words. You know. <laughs> yeah, but you and, wrote them. Yeah, I know, but, but everybody knows them better than I do. So what if you get halfway through and you get stuck? <laughs> now, speaking um, of John Schumann, he actually spoke to you a few years ago about changing a couple of crucial words in Kaysan. Yes, that's right. He, he rang me up. He, John does a lot of uh, good work with... Um, with veterans and in, in particular Vietnam veterans and he does a lot of charity work and fundraising and stuff like that and he he rang me up and said uh, would you would you mind if I performed your song only made it I left my heart to the sappers around long tan and um, and I said mate go for it you know that's that's fine with me I'm not uh, precious about that he's out there doing good work he should go for it Cigarettes to the black market man. I had the Vietnam cold turkey from the ocean to the silver city, and it's only other vets could understand. About the long forgotten dark side guarantees how there were no V Day heroes in 1973. How we said in a Sydney harbor.
for the day It's gonna rain into the weekend At least that's what they say I'm gonna leave what I'm doing I think I'm gonna play some My guest is Don Walker. You released the book Shots in 2009, Don, a collection of short autobiographical pieces. And with a prose that I guess for me, and I was listening back to the pieces that you recorded with Radio National in 2009, uh, having a listen to those over the last week or so, and thinking about how much the words and the way that you were writing reminds me a little bit of of Leonard Cohen's Book of Longing in that the words ring true 
and they can calm your heart and smack you in the head all at the same time. But I sometimes feel like Leonard's lying to me. I don't, th- I don't think they lie, but they certainly make stuff up. <sighs> Is that lying? Um, so it's, it's an essential part of songwriting. Many years ago, I was listening to somebody doing an interview with Paul Kelly and they were like digging into, you know, just, it was way beyond, you know, what comes first, mate, the lyrics or the music. They're digging into, you know, just what happens in that, you know, how do you come up with these lyrics? And and Paul said, I make them up. And I I just thought that was, I burst out laughing. I thought that was brilliant, fantastic. Of course, you make stuff up. So is that lying? Um, so, yes, yeah, so definitely sometimes it can tip over. <laughs> if you pretend it's the truth. So if, if, you're, if me or Laughing Lanny is writing something that is purporting, is not fiction, is purporting to be, you know, a factual account and then, and that, and that tips over into something that didn't actually happen, well... Maybe. You're on the edge there. Maybe a bit. Although you just referred to, to Leonard Cohen as Laughing Lenny, and I, I suspect that for many, many people, uh, his his lyrics are seen by and his songs by many people as being doom and gloom. And But he's also very funny and very dark in a way that, as you were alluding to earlier, I think appeals to an Australian sensibility. Well, the big attraction for Leonard Cohen, and I've like the Beach Boys, I've become a Leonard Cohen fan late in life. Never took much notice of him before the last five or ten years. But uh, the big attraction with Leonard Cohen is is his humour. Mm. And I think, you know, if I could say the most important ingredient, uh, I, don't, I don't think anything's got much legs if it hasn't got humour in it. You can look round and you can and you can look at all the recording artists in history and divide the ones who have humour from the ones who don't. And that's a that's a pretty profound that really sorts them out. And Leonard Cohen is one of the funniest people out there and one of the driest people in his in his lyrics. And uh, and that's why now, late in life, I never would have done this, but now I I buy every new Leonard Cohen album. I bought the new one on the weekend in Melbourne and listened to it on the way back. Yes, it was only last year's Australian concerts that I finally got the Leonard thing. And, right. and then I went from the Hunter Valley show to promptly finding myself a ticket for the Sydney Opera House show and just thought, you know, you have waited until this man is nearly 80 to figure him out. What's wrong with you? Yes, um, a lot of people are converted in concert because his concerts have been extraordinary. My guest is Don Walker. Joining me here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle, it's usually you were talking about James Barnes earlier, James Swan, and it's usually the front man of any band that gets the majority of the attention. So I guess in a lot of ways, Jimmy Barnes has deflected a lot of the heat of Cold Chisel from the rest of the band. Uh, but then you you deliberately went and did that yourself after Chisel disbanded, uh, and as you have been doing for many years now with Catfish and Tex and Don and, and Charlie and working solo, you've put yourself up there. And you you mentioned how hard it was initially to do uh, a, a Cold Chisel song in in that context. What has it been like to put yourself up there as it's all about me as opposed to it's all about the band or Jimmy Barnes? Well, it's it's never about all about me. Even when you're up there in front of a band, it's about the songs and the story, and uh, and you're trying to put that over and um, and connect that. You you actually you're trying to whisper in the ear of everybody who's listening. And that's whether you're doing something that's being whether you've recorded something that's being played on the radio, or if you're playing a big show and there's thousands of people there. It's just one person trying to communicate to one other. And in some situations, there's a lot of one other. It's not about, you know, I don't think, either for me or for Jim, it's not about uh, you, the person standing up there. It is where the attention tends to go, though. Well, of course, you know, everybody's, it's one person talking to another. The other people, no matter how many they are, they're listening. And they don't actually get to talk back. That's the fascist thing about, uh, and and for people in our position, the beautiful thing. 
We, yes. Although maybe it is our ability to, to buy your words and your stories that is our way of talking back. Or not buying. Or not buying, as That's the case right. may be. I think our storytellers are precious. Our artists are precious, no matter what it is that they're, they're doing. Without our, our storytellers, we are lesser people for it. When you look at the things that you have written, what, do you, what would you consider to be the most valuable story you've contributed? That's pretty difficult to answer because uh, there's a lot of stuff over the decades and I don't think of things as being valuable or otherwise although there's a few things that I've written that I come to think of it I would regard as valueless, but I'm not going to name them. Uh, we spoke earlier about people who use their music to do a lot of charitable work hmm. and to help people. And uh, and that's good. That means you've if, if you have a song that's doing that, then you've got a really valuable song. That's, that has value. To me, looking back, the songs that I value most... It often has no, there's no correlation between how good a song is, in my eyes, and how well known it is or how much money it's made or anything like that. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's not an inverse correlation either. There's a, probably one of the most, in my heart, one of the most beautiful songs that I've ever written. I wrote like 15 years ago, not quite 15 years ago. At, at the turn of the century. And that is, when I wrote it, I thought, this is going to be massive all over the world because it's such a beautiful song. And I wrote it about, you know, a personal situation, but it was universal and all that. And it had what I thought was a beautiful melody and it was simple. It was everything that I thought was good about songcraft. And yet nobody showed, nobody, everybody who heard it in, you know, publishing world and places like that said acknowledged how good it was but I couldn't get it recorded until and so that's what I would would call one of the one of the top five songs that I'm proud of and yet nobody knew about it for 13 years and Missy Higgins has just recorded it and recorded a stunning version of it with some with you know some stunning singing and now people are hearing it but in the meantime there's a lot of other songs that I've written that are enormously popular and have been all over the airwaves that I didn't think I didn't think were nearly as good. Now that would be off Missy's Oz album, Don. Yes. The way you are tonight. That's right. Are there faces in the crowd? Are there singing long? Celebrations on a midnight cheer. I set the world alight. All the fire in the sky. I can see it. could love you for a thousand years the way you are tonight the way you hold me the way you see 
that are hiding in your head or in your heart that you know you want to share with people, you just haven't worked out the words for them yet? Yes. Yes, there are. But when they're in, in that stage, and there's, there's things, there are things like that that are hung around for a long time in the back of my head, but it's, they're difficult to describe because that will be, describing them will be in the song or in the prose writing. And I haven't figured out a way of doing that yet. So that will be where they live now in pictures and like movies and landscapes and, and, a, and a feeling and maybe a few scraps of words. How do you know when a song is done, when it's finished, when to leave it alone? Well, you just know. There's like a big bell goes off. This is right now. And it's, um, it's something that uh, it's the same with a piece of prose writing or anything like that and I can't explain that uh, but I utterly know when something's right and at the same time the reverse side of that is that you utterly know when something's not right (laughs) Um, but knowing it's not right doesn't mean that you that you know how to get to where the bell goes off so there's a lot of things that um, you know I put things out without waiting for the bell to go off when they're not not quite right, but they're good enough. You're not going to tell me what they are, are you? No, oh. no. But I um, wish you would. <laughs> but there's enough. There is an internal thing that that's um, it. It defies all logic because all surely all of these things are subjective. What is right to one person is not right to another. Um, but there is something in me, and I've talked to other people, and I know it exists in other, in at least some other people as well, where it's not a subjective thing. There, there is a, there is an utter certainty when something's right, and a nagging, um, you know, a nagging cold dissatisfaction that, and and itch when it's not. How do you see yourself? Do you consider yourself a musician or would you always put writer first? Well, I I consider myself to be a rock and roll musician fundamentally and I found a niche in that uh, as a writer because uh, I was never a... Amongst rock and roll musicians, there are always people who, you know, played the the piano better than I did, so I I multitasked a bit and, uh, and found another niche so that I could you know, survive in that world. And musically, though, you've ventured off into other areas. It hasn't all been rock and roll as such, or the stereotype of rock and roll. Of course, you know, I've done stuff that's jazz, I've done stuff that's country, done torch torch ballads. I've tried most of everything, except I haven't tried classical. I think that I, I think it would be foolish to have a tilt at that. <laughs> um, it's pretty embarrassing when rock and roll or jazz musicians attempt classical music and it's even more embarrassing when it goes the when classical musicians go the other way um but fundamentally uh no matter where i go in these genres and i'm quite suspicious of of such divisions um i think i take with me my formative years which were playing rock and roll in non-concert situations and you take a little bit of that. You can hear a little bit of that in, you know, even when later in life I'm doing concert-type stuff. There's a certain a certain grime that sticks. Though you have very recently done a tiny little show in a tiny little venue in a studio in Newcastle. What appeals about doing that sort of small, intimate show? Is that not a bit confronting after playing to tens of thousands of people for a 20 or 30 years of your life it's not the size of the audience uh you're talking about uh you're talking about uh glenny ray's little Sunset venue Studio. in um mm. mayfield and um it's it's 50 people it doesn't really matter uh the size of the audience it's what's what's going on on stage and in that situation i'm there with uh with nothing to hide behind except uh there's no band mm. you know 
it's just uh, Roy Payne playing guitar on some things and and me and Glanny Ray's beautiful piano. So I have to make it work with those few tools. And um, so that's, that's what's confronting about it. Uh, the night before, which I did at the supper club up in Nundle, up near Tamworth, uh, it worked. Uh, the night I did in Mayfield, you know, the first set didn't work. It, it, I just couldn't make it work. The second set worked and everybody got it and we all had a good time. The beauty of doing things like that and why why I took on those two shows because I was putting myself in a situation where, uh, deliberately putting myself in a situation where I, I didn't know if I could pull it off and I had to do some work. I had to do a lot of preparation and had to figure out things that it, that I haven't had to figure out before to make a show of that length work with just me and the piano. I think that's really gutsy when you're sitting, you know, six feet from people and you are literally eyeballing them with your work. And it's right there, as you said, nothing to hide behind. You're just, you're just all there and you're sitting within touching distance of people and saying, here I am and this is what I do. Yeah, but they're very peaceful people. Mm. None of them are armed <laughs> and, and none of them are more than moderately drunk. And there's no violence surging through the crowd. Everybody's sitting down, nobody's on their feet, nobody's angry. So, But you're still but, sitting there saying, well, I hope you like me. Or do you not care now? <laughs> Can you afford well, to not care? You've got to care. No, I, well, I do care. I, it's not I hope you like me. Um, none of them know me. And at the end of the night, they're not going to know me either. After that hour, hour and a half, whatever, uh, that's not the point. I'm hoping that they didn't feel like it was a waste of their time, that they actually felt like that was a worthwhile thing to do. Mm. That's, what I'm wish- that's what I'm wishing and hoping for. And, um, you know, people's time and attention is valuable. And uh, if you're going to use it up, you, that's, that's why, you know, you've got to do something worthwhile up there and make it work and try and figure out a way of transporting them into the stories. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes you don't manage that. And if, if you don't manage that, well, then, you know, that's a failure and, and you really, you know, instead of transporting them somewhere, you've stuck them, you've seat belted them into a dark little room for an hour when they could have been enjoying themselves. Don Walker is coming up to Newcastle again very, very soon, October 26. It's a Sunday at Lazotte's, which is another, not, well, not quite as small as, uh, as Sunset Studio, but still a small and beautiful venue that really gives you the chance to, to be present with the audience. If people would like some more information, they can just pop online. That's Sunday, October 26 at Lazotte's. Don Walker, thank you very much for being so generous with your time. I'm very grateful for that. Before I let you go, what have you done right? What have I done right? Hmm. Well, the things that I have done right have nothing to do with music uh, because there are far more fundamental things than that and, and they're not public things. And, um, and there haven't been many of them and there's a lot of things I've done wrong. But, uh, but they're the things in the end. You know, while I'm doing this interview, I get a call from my daughter. That's uh, it's in that world where where you really succeed or fail. And um, if there's a couple of things that I that I like myself for, it's in that world. All right, Daddy Walker, I'm only going to let you go and call your daughter back and have a chat with <laughs> her, and uh, hopefully it is something happy and fabulous and wonderful that she has to to share with you, or vice versa. Uh, and Carol, we should mention that uh, when I do go on stage at Lazotte's, it won't be it won't be just with the piano. I'll have the full band there, and uh, and they are a wonderful band. But that's a full show. All right, it's going to be wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Again, call us here if you would like some more information. Thirteen hundred thirty three twelve thirty three. You can head along to the Lazotte's website, uh, and also to uh, to Don's page as well. Don, thank you. You go and ring your girl. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. I do too. Saturday night. Saturday night. Saturday night. Saturday night. Saturday night.
It will be out forever. 